One more hour, then you can go take a nice long walk. I know you guys are antsy getting off those seats, right? Okay. So we're going to continue talking about the thorax today. We're going to finish off the last few slides from yesterday's lecture and then jump into some fun clinical things. So, of course, our first few slides, your objectives, your assigned readings, and we start off with this one here. Now, yesterday we left off talking about the milk line. And you can see the little picture up here. There we have the milk line extending all the way from the axilla down into the inguinal region. And the first picture we put up there for you is to show um, what it looks like when there's ectopic uh, mammary gland tissue. And this lady has an ectopic breast in the axillary region. Okay, this is one of the most common areas to find ectopic breast tissue. Um, sorry, guys, there we go. Right, this is one of the most common areas to find ectopic um, breast tissue. Keep in mind it's fully functional and subject to um, breast cancer and all the diseases that usually affect the breast under normal circumstances. Now here we have a gentleman with polythelia, and polythelia is a term we use to describe someone with extra nipples. Now, interestingly enough, and I didn't get to mention that yesterday, is that very often, or many individuals, might have developed an additional nipple during embryonic development, but it regressed, and now it might look very similar to a small mole. It's much more common in males than in females. Okay, and this gentleman obviously took the advantage of increasing his number of piercings, right? And then we also have a condition which I know when you look at the picture you might think it's um, something interesting to look at. Gynecomastia is associated with a disturbance in hormonal secretions or often due to hormonal use as treatment for certain diseases. Gynecomastia is development of breast tissue, and when I talk about breast tissue here, I specifically mean glandular tissue. Right? And that happens in males. Also something that you need to keep in mind, and we will talk about it, is that breast cancer, although more common in females, also occur in men. Do not miss it. Okay, it's equally dangerous in men, if not more so. Right, so we talked about these different variations. We talked about the milk line. Now we need to remind you of the blood supply and the innervation. Where do these, where does the structure lie? Where do these organs take their position? And it's over the pectoral region. So it's natural for me to think about the vessels lying around the structures. We're going to have our internal thoracic artery coming down, giving branches. And I'm going to have my pectoral artery giving branches. It's in the same region. Why wouldn't it? And lastly, the lateral thoracic artery. Lateral thoracic artery probably supplies quite 
a large aspect of the breast in comparison to the other two. Also keeping in mind our um, uh, nerve supply, the skin around the area are supplied by dermatomes. Okay, the same corresponding level. Nipple in particular is the T4 nerve. So above the nipple will be, there we go. All right. Then we come to, oh, the answer is T3. <laughs> then we come to the lymphatic drainage. And this is something that people very often struggle with because we fixate so much on this group of nodes, which is the anterior nodes, and people forget that the axillary nodes consist of five groups. So the majority of the lymph from the breast will drain into the axillary nodes. Most of the lymphatics from the upper lateral, lower lateral, as well as the lower medial quadrants will drain into the axillary nodes. The axillary nodes consist of five different groups. Now, depending on which quadrant I'm in, the first set of nodes that receive the lymph from the breast will change and differ. The anterior pectoral nodes receive most of the lymphatics from the lateral quadrants as the first lymph nodes that it encounters. Okay. From there, it will sequentially move through different groups. Now, in this case, it will move from the anterior pectoral nodes to the central nodes, and from the central nodes to the apical nodes, all still within the axillary group of nodes. From there onwards, it will join either the left or the right main lymphatic duct. Now, what's the main lymphatic duct on the left? The thoracic duct. Good. The rest of the lymphatics from the breast will drain into the parasternal nodes. Now, they have their own clinical importance, and it's that these lymphatics connect to the parasternal nodes on the contralateral side, and they provide a pathway for metastasis from one side to the next. It is rare, but it does happen, and it needs to be paid attention to. Right, question time. Right. So, there's supposed to be an indicator. All right. So, 79% of you decided the fourth intercostal nerve. 
Um, second intercostal nerve. Does it go to the nipple? No. Intercostal brachial nerve. Not completely... Not a completely odd choice, because later on in the lecture we will talk about the intercostal brachial nerve and its relationship to the breast. We'll talk about it. But no, not that. Long thoracic nerve, what does that supply? There we go. And the 10th intercostal nerve corresponds to which landmark? There we go, right. Now, how are we going to talk about some x-rays and we're going to talk about some clinical scenarios that you can identify in x-rays. This is probably the part that excites you the most, right? Because we're actually doing something clinical. But, I have bad news for you. You still have to know your anatomy. And we're going to talk about how to use the anatomy to read the x-ray. The first thing we need to know when we look at, it, uh, at a chest x-ray is how it was taken. Was it taken as an AP view? or as a PA view. Now, thankfully, for the most part, it's taken in a PA view. And what does it mean? It means the particle generator was behind the, the person, posterior to their back. The film is in front of the patient, and I have a nice, clear view of the structures in the thoracic wall, in the thoracic cage. Now, you're familiar with most of these terms already from the previous module, but keep in mind that the more dense the structure, the more likely the particles will be either absorbed or scattered, and so the brighter it will appear on the film, and we refer to that as being radio-opaque. If this, the particles can just pass through, usually we use air as an example, it appears dark on the film, and so we refer to it as being radiolucent. The lateral view, usually when you take a lateral view, whatever is the side of interest, typically that would be the left side, faces the film. Why? Because we need to see the structures very clearly. But before we can start to identify the different anatomical structures on the film, we need to make sure what the patient's position was, was the film taken of good quality, and is the patient in res uh, which phase of respiration are they in? And we're going to talk through that. So at the top here, I have patient history and names several times because that's very important. You need to know why it is you're looking at the x-ray. When you look at the x-ray after you've decided the quality, you need to take a, a good approach. It doesn't matter whether you work from inside to outside or whether you work from outside to inside. As long as you have an order, you first look, I like to look at bones first. Okay, look at the bones first, then we look at the lung fields because they're usually pretty easy to find, and then we look at other details, soft tissue details in the thoracic region that will be the mediastinum. And we'll add to these concepts as we go through the modules. Now, how do I identify the position of the patient? And we refer to this as rotation. Now, I'm going to look at the clavicles, specifically the medial ends, and I'm going to assess the distance between the medial ends of the clavicles and the first four spinous processes. 
if it's half, if the spinous processes are halfway between the two medial ends, means the person was not rotated while the image was being taken. Keep in mind that if the person is rotated, the image will appear different than when they're not. So what do you think? You have a 50% chance of getting it right. Was this person rotated or was they, were they standing straight? They were slightly rotated. Good. Why? Because there's a shorter distance on this side than on that side. All right. The next thing we're going to look for is the exposure. And that is referred to as penetration. What am I looking for? I'm looking for whether enough particles was um, transmitted to the patient so that I can see everything I need to see. And the way to assess that is to look for the vertebrae. And you should be able to see all of them. Now, it's difficult to see on the screen for you there, but there's a, an intercostal disc that you can see clearly there. There's another one there. But as we go towards the lower regions, they become less and less distinct. That means that the exposure here was probably a little on the low side. We don't want to have overexposure, but we also don't want an underexposure. And the last thing we're going to look at before we're going to identify the anatomical structures is the phase of respiration. Now we want to make sure that the patient's x-ray was taken during full inspiration. So I'm going to look at the ribs. If I look here on the posterior side, the posterior ribs appear to be horizontal. They're easy to identify. You can see them here. And as they curve anteriorly, they become more oblique. Now, the anterior portion of the rib I cannot identify because it's made of cartilage. It doesn't show up on an x-ray. Once I've identified the rib, I can start to count them. If the patient was viewed in a full inspiration, I expect to see between 9 and 10 ribs. So we're going to start counting them. This one up here is the first rib. And the first rib appears very different to that of the rest because when you look at the um, first rib itself, it's more horizontal. It doesn't slope down. So there's the first rib. And just below it, also slightly horizontally, is going to be the second rib. And I use the attachment to the vertebrae as my identifying point. And then I can identify the third rib and the fourth and fifth and sixth and so on and so forth. If I can see 10 ribs, that means the patient was in full inspiration. Now keep in mind, as we move down, it does become a little harder to identify them because there's other structures that become more apparent in those regions. Then we look at basic landmarks. Always compare the sides, left versus right. Doesn't matter what you're looking for. Okay. Chest x-rays are often used to identify the soft tissues. I like to start with the bony structure, so I start with the spinous processes. Followed by the clavicles, I can see the position of the clavicles. I can see here that the scapula are rotated outward. Why? Because the patient had their arms like this. I want that to happen because I'm looking at, sorry, <laughs> patient had their arms like this. I want the scapula to be moved to the lateral side so I can see through the spaces where the lung fields are. I can identify the rib shadow 
And then I look for my soft tissue starting with the lung fields, which appear darker but still have a little bit of specks in them, heart shadow, which will break down into smaller pieces when you do your CPR module. And then here, lastly, we have the diaphragm. Now you can see that the diaphragm is slightly higher on the right than on the left. Keep in mind that when I'm looking at an x-ray, the patient's right is always going to be on my left side. The patient's left is always going to be on my right side. I am facing the patient. Think of it that way. Now, I've talked about and showed you pictures of how to differentiate between the anterior and the posterior aspects. This is just describing in words what you're looking for. The posterior ribs are easier to identify. They're pretty obvious when you look at the image, and they tend to be more horizontal. As we come forward, as we come anterior, they tend to curve, and as we approach the sternum, we no longer see any rib because that is a cartilage plate. Now, there are cases where those um, costal, um, costal cartilages can calcify. So if you do see them, don't be too alarmed because it does happen in some individuals. Now we know that looking at one view of an x-ray is not enough. We have to look at two different views to make sure that what we think we're seeing is actually what we're seeing. Now looking at a lateral thoracic x-ray, it will be slightly different whether I'm looking at a right versus a left. This is a left, a true left. The spine, as I identify the different portions of it, will become darker as I move down. Why? For one, the thoracic wall gets a little thinner because there's less muscles in the way. I have the lung fields in there. So there's a whole bunch of things that happen making sure that I can see a difference between here and here. If I'm looking anteriorly, the sternum should be viewed from the side or edge on, okay. similar as if you were to look at the side of a blade, knife blade. I have a little space behind the sternum known as the retrosternal space which would appear slightly darker and I would identify the hilar space which is a similar sort of appearance. Those are two areas we typically look at when we're interested in the soft tissues to look for um, increased densities in those areas. Now looking at the ribs, I can see here that the right rib appears larger. So there's one here that's been outlined. But if you look here, there's another one here and another one here. They appear larger. Why? Because they are further away from the foam, so they have a higher magnification. The left ribs appear very short, little stumpy structures over here. Right. Now, we can use x-rays. Typically, we use um, the, the frontal views, the, the PA views, to identify rib fractures. What am I doing? What am I looking for? I'm identifying the bones. I'm following the different structures. And I'm looking for what is known as a discontinuity. So bones, do they appear radio-opaque or radiolucent? Radio-opaque. So if there's a fracture, if there's a break, what do you think? That line will be darker or brighter? 
It'll be darker. Why? Because there's a break in that opacity. Okay, and I'll show you that on a picture in a minute. Now, interestingly enough, single rib fractures can go completely undetected. And their cause can be as silly as somebody just had a very big bout of coughing. Suddenly woke up one day and started coughing, and two days later realized that it really hurts when I breathe. It's not uncommon for that to happen. If there is no chest pain, it goes undetected. We can also have rib fractures associated with multiple fractures or multiple injuries. And these are usually associated with trauma. Now, trauma, specifically motor vehicles, we'll talk about that in more detail. Because of the way the thorax moves, and because it has a little bit of elasticity due to the joints, sternal fractures, sternal injuries are very, very uncommon. Okay, if I compress the thoracic cage, it has a little bit of give, the most common places or the weakest spot of the rib during that compression will be the angle of the rib. And it makes sense if you think about it. You're pressing on two ends of something, right? If you take anything that can bend, at some point the angle is where it's going to snap. If I have trauma to the posterior aspect of the rib, I'll have vertebrae break in addition to the rib or even instead of. So looking at them on an x-ray, here we can see, so there are nice structures. You can see them very nicely, and whoops, there's something that doesn't look quite right. It's a discontinuity, there's a line. If I blow that up, you can see here, there's a dark line where the two ends no longer connect. Why is that? Because the particles can squeeze through that space. So it appears darker. It's not scattered in the same way as the rest of the structures. Now, multi-point, multiple point fractures are a little more worrisome. And they usually occur during motor vehicle accidents, specifically drivers that get crushed against the um, steering wheel. But they can also occur during certain types of pathologies. Multi-point Multiple point fractures literally means one rib breaking in two places. Now you can think if the, the rib is broken in two places, it means there's a segment that's loose. And because there's a segment that's loose, you're going to have trauma to the structures on the internal aspect. And what is this, the membranous layer that lines the inner aspect of the thoracic cage? The pleura. Parietal pleura. The parietal pleura is broken, air could rush into the space, and we have what is known as a pneumothorax. There's blood vessels in those spaces, isn't it? The intercostal spaces have blood vessels. So when that fracture occurs, especially during a traumatic injury, it's very common for those vessels to break. Where does the, the blood leak into? The same space can be either inside the pleural cavity, so we'll have a combination of a pneumothorax and a hemothorax, or the blood can just leak into the thoracic cavity, or the pleural cavity specifically, and we have a hemothorax. 
Now, it's quite distressing looking at somebody who has a flail chest. When we have a little segment that's broken off, usually several ribs, if you look at this indiv these individuals, their breathing is extremely labored. And you can visibly see the little segment that's broken off moving in the opposite direction than the rest of the thoracic cage. Okay. These individuals are, they're not happy. Most of the time they're in extreme pain. They're usually unconscious. The problem is we need to help them. And we need to help them quickly. So we treat this as a medical emergency. What's the best way to alleviate their problems? Is to make sure that we take out whatever air or fluid is in that space. And how do we do that? By doing a thoracostomy. Now it's different when we have a pneumothorax versus a, a hemothorax or a hydrothorax, which is another type of example. And when, we, when you do the CPR module, you'll learn about that in a little more detail. But now, I've already said that this patient is in severe distress. We need to make sure we don't cause them any more distress, so we're going to introduce an anesthetic fluid into the space before we push something in there to evacuate the fluid. Where do we put the needle? Above the rib. Typically, I would do this at the, fi at the uh, fifth intercostal space. This one's a little higher. This is at the fourth intercostal space. But above the rib. It's not a problem because the fluid will diffuse in the tight space and the nerves will be anesthetized. Okay. Then introduce a tube. And the tube is introduced into the space through the parietal pleura and fed downward so that it lies in the lowest point of the pleural cavity. Can you remember what that is? Yes, costodiaphragmatic recess. Right. And this will then allow the fluid to come out. A lot of other things needs to happen to help this patient as well, but at least the fluid will be there and their breathing will ease up just a little bit. Now there's another condition that can cause just as much distress to a patient, and that is pleuritis. There's degrees of this pleura, referring to the pleura, both uh, parietal and visceral. Itis, meaning there's an infection. There's infection in the pleura, and it usually is accompanied by a collection of fluid in the pleural cavity. This fluid is not any ordinary type of fluid, it usually contains some kind of bacteria as well as a number of other products. It says here consolidation, it's also known as something called exudate. And because of that fluid, the, because the fluid is there and because of the constituency of the fluid, the pleura are no longer allowed to move smoothly over each other. And so when you're going to listen to the patient's lungs, Instead of hearing just normal air moving in and out, which is a whooshing sound, you'll hear a scratching sound. And it sounds very disturbing. It's, if you take your nails and you scratch around, um, if you take, what can I think of an, as, as an example? It really is, it sounds like a grating sound, a scratching sound. 
not a crackle. In this case, no, good that you bring that up, good that you bring that up. The difference is between a plural friction rub, which is what you will hear here, which is more of a scratchy sound, and a crackle is the location of the fluid. A crackle is when the fluid is inside the lungs or inside the bronchial spaces. And the reason why you hear a crackle in that case is because of the movement of the air. Here, it's the two layers of pleura moving against each other, which causes the rubbing sound. Okay. Pain from this area, whatever portion has the inflammation, somatic fibers, right? The body wall structure, so we have somatic fibers. But because we have the diaphragm over here, and usually the fluid will collect in the costodiaphragmatic space, the diaphragm is supplied by the phrenic nerve. The phrenic nerve comes from C3, 4, and 5. So I might actually have some pain on the upper shoulder, which accompanies this. Now, while we're talking about pain, or before we talk about pain, how do I determine how to treat this patient? Because depending on the type of um, infectious agent I have, we need to give them a different type of treatment. I can extract a small amount of fluid from the pleural space. And the best place to do that is at that ninth intercostal space, between the ninth and the tenth rib. Now, I'm not pushing in a tube, I'm being gentle, I'm inserting a needle to collect a small amount of fluid. So it doesn't matter here that the liver is there, because I'm just going into a small space, the lung will be pushed up by the fluid, and I can easily get into the area. Again, I'm going to go above the rib, not below, but because there might be a small bundle of collateral vessels or collateral neurovascular bundle above the rib below, we just angle the needle a little upward. That way, making sure that we don't damage these vessels as well. Right, now we can talk about pain. So any, anything that happens to the thoracic cavity and that or the thoracic cage, sorry, and that includes the parietal pleura. The pain is felt exactly where the problem is. It's localized to the area of the problem. Whether it's from the joints uh, between the ribs and the vertebrae, whether it's from the joints between the ribs and the sternum, or whether it's an intercostal muscle that is spasmed, or whatever it may be, the pain is localized to the area because it's somatic innervation. I feel it exactly where the problem is. Now there's, unfortunately, a number of reasons as to why we can feel pain. And one of the ones, one of the conditions that cause pain, typically on the thoracic region, is something known as herpes zoster. And you might be more familiar with the term shingles. And this occurs in individuals who, at some point in their life, usually during childhood, had chickenpox. And the viral particles, instead of going away completely, decides to hang around, and they go and nest themselves, lying dormantly, without detection, in the ganglia of 
sensory nerves, specifically dorsal root ganglion of any level, but typically around the thoracic region, and then two other nerves that you'll encounter as we move along, the trigeminal ganglion and the uh, geniculate ganglion of the facial nerve, which lie around the face area here. Now these attacks or, or conditions can come about by just somebody undergoing severe stress. It may also be brought about by the use of corticosteroids. And that, um, those two are the most common causes of this eruption happening. You may have the particles in your dorsal root ganglia without them ever erupting. Fortunately, these two individuals were not so lucky. What does it look like? It's a vesicular rash. Red rash, very painful, with little vesicles that look pretty much the same as the chickenpox vesicles. Now, when you break them open, you can actually see the viral particles in them. But that's for further on, when you do pathology. Okay, when you break them open, you have, there's a specific... Uh, all right, there we go, we're back. All right, we're back. Now, the interesting thing about shingles or herpes zoster is the fact that it will follow a particular dermatome, sometimes one, sometimes two. But it's almost always unilateral. It doesn't cross the midline. You can see very clearly here, there's the midline and it's not crossing that midline at all. And why does it happen is because it runs with the sensory fibers as they innervate the skin. And that's how the eruption happens in that particular location. So just because I can ask you, which dermatome do you think this is going to be? Yes, about T3. Okay, good. All right, so we've talked about a lot of things, and now I'm going to talk about more things. We talked about chest x-ray. We talked about different things we can identify. Another type of imaging modality that's used to assess the structures of the thoracic wall is mammography. It is the same technology as x-ray, slightly different machine. We have the particle generator usually being at the top the film at the bottom, and the breast is placed in between them. Okay. And yes, it works exactly like this. 
particle generator squishes the tissue between it and the foam. Particles are transmitted through and we get quite high resolution image. We can see around here skin and subcutaneous tissue and some fat of the breast itself and the slightly denser structures which would be our ligaments and glands. Now this is what a normal uh, mammogram would look like but we can also find some abnormal mammograms. And here, this is particularly interesting because it has very nice outlines of lymph nodes that you can identify on this mammogram. And that is why I put it up because it has a very nice lymph node um, appearance here. Now this circular area indicates the lymphatic the invasion of lymphatic nodes by cells in specifically the axillary tail. You don't need to know that that's where they're located. I'm just telling you because it's interesting. And you can see the connective tissue septa here and how they're denser. If you look very carefully, you'll appreciate that the lymphatics here has been blocked. And that's why there is an increase in density in some of these areas. And we'll look at the, the appearance of a breast in which the lymphatics has been blocked on an external appearance as known as something known as pure orange. We'll talk about that in a minute. So when we identify irregularities on a mammogram, we're going to investigate further. Right? Sometimes they may be normal. There are several conditions which are normal conditions. Many individuals have... Uh, densities throughout their breast as a genetic condition. We can have fibroadenomas or fibroadenosis or even breast cysts, which are all benign um, growths, benign swellings. If it is can um, cancer, though, meaning it's malignant, then we will also biopsy the lymph nodes. Remember the lymph nodes that we go for is always the one into which that particular quadrant will drain first. Now, one of the most common ways in which um, there's an alert that somebody might have a, a cancerous condition in the breast is by self-examination. Now, this differs from region to region, interestingly enough. Self-examination has proven to be a very good way for early detection of breast cancer. And there's several methods that can be done. It's a vertical method, and it's based on palpation. Keep in mind that the breast changes normally during a woman's menstrual cycle. So it's recommended that the test is always administered at the same point in the cycle so that there's no um, confusion as to whether it's a normal change or whether it is something to worry about. The normal changes do occur. They tend to be bilateral. So if the breast examination is done on both breasts, they, they should have similar um, uh, um, densities in similar pl places. But if there is a change or anything that indicates that something had changed since between two different breast examinations, it's always a good idea to go and investigate. Okay. Now when we're looking at 
these images, with the exception of the first one here, most of these occur only in advanced cases. Now, they occur for specific reasons. The skin dumpling here can be um, used to, as a result of the um, lymphatics being blocked or a result of the ligaments being pulled on because the tumor has invaded. Now, a lump can either be seen or felt. Now, here we have an inverted nipple with a growth visible on the skin. Change in the appearance of the nipple. Any change in appearance of nipple may indicate that there is a blockage to lymph drainage, there's a blockage to um, blood supply, something is going on on the inside that we need to investigate. Changes in skin color or texture, and here we have a good example of a change in skin color, and this one here appears very red, very swollen, and may even have a discoloration or a discolored fluid leaking from the nipple. may also be a clear fluid leaking from the nipple. But keep in mind that these ones here are usually in advanced cases. Now, pewterange, which is something I've spoken about briefly before, is a result of the lymphatics being blocked. Lymphatic vessels are small, they get blocked, and so the skin around the breast has a pitted appearance, very similar to the skin of an orange. And that's what the name refers to. It's a, it's, um, there's a lot of lymphedema, and it has this pitted appearance. Now, if it advances a little further, you can still see some of the pewterange here, the pitted um, appearance of the skin, but in addition, we have retraction of the nipple. Retraction of the nipple occurs when the suspensory ligaments and the connective tissue septa have been invaded. And because they've been invaded, they're being pulled towards a different portion. They literally pull the nipple inward. Now, one of the ways in which this is treated or used to be treated is via radical mastectomy. Keep in mind the word radical Mastectomy refers to removing the entire breast as well as all associated lymph nodes. It means the entire axillary group as well as the parasternal groups. Now, why do we bring this up? Because during the axillary clearance, which is what is the, the term used for extraction of the lymph nodes, there may be some damage to two nerves in particular. Long thoracic nerve, and this one here, which is the intercostal brachial. Now, the long thoracic nerve will prevent our patient from doing which action? Yes, good. Typically, she'll go back to the physician complaining that she has difficulty combing her hair. That's usually the complaint, or difficulty reaching a shower, but usually difficulty combing the hair is what um, people come with when they have uh, serratus anterior um, weakness. Now keep in mind that these symptoms may appear sometime after the surgery. Might not always be apparent straight after. Can also be ca caused by scar tissue. The two most common nerves damaged during radical mastectomy is the intercostal brachial nerve and the long thoracic nerves. Yes. 
In some instances, yes, but it varies from surgeon to surgeon. Okay, I know Wikipedia says pec major, and I please don't listen to Wikipedia. Wikipedia is... <laughs> it yeah, that's why it depends. So his question is, does it involve removal of pec major and minor? It depends on the situation. If it has invaded into pec major and minor, which he suggested, absolutely they will take it out. But if it hasn't, they try to, uh, to leave it behind, especially if they're going to do a reconstruction, okay, because it helps keep the reconstruction um, in the right place. Okay. Ah, now, this image I gave you before, and you had to go and look up some questions. So what do you think? Afterwards, explain to you. All right. So, what did you guys say? Okay. What? What? What was the unusual finding? Some of you said nothing. That's fine. Some of you said there's a lump in the breast. Looks like a very large lump in the breast. Okay, what is the answer? There's an implant. Okay, you can see a nice little space where the implant is put. You have some fatty tissue here. And yes, it does look unusual, like some people have mentioned in the front here. All right, so this is an MRI. Now we're going to quickly talk about CT scans. You just viewed an MRI and you saw a bright white area around the external aspect that wasn't bone, right? It was fluid. When it comes to a CT scan, we have the same type of radiation that we have in x-rays. The difference is it's a lot more. Okay. The reason why we get such good quality images with CT scan because we use a lot of radiation and it's very specific beam that sort of figuratively slices the patient into very small segments. And these small segments can then be viewed on a screen. We can also use it to reconstruct three-dimensionally different parts of the individual by using this. One of the major ways in which I can identify that I'm looking at a CT scan is because I can see both bone and soft tissue quite clearly, but bone appears white. 
On an MRI, you won't see bone appearing as white. That's the major difference between those two. You can look at a lot of images, and that's something that people often struggle with. Now, we can see soft tissue here, which is different to an X-ray. We don't typically use CT scans when we think of identifying fractures, unless it's something that's difficult to identify in an X-ray, and we want to do a reconstruction to see exactly how we're going to fix it. We typically use these kind of things for soft tissue. Now, I've labeled a few structures here. That there, Rib 9. Now, how do I know it's Rib 9? Because of that. There's the diaphragm coming down, touching to Rib 9, 10. You can see Rib 11 and 12. Why? Purely because of the plane of section. What kind of section is this? What plane is this? Coronal plane, great. I can see the intercostal muscles here, and of course my nice serratus anterior. There we go. As we go through the next few lectures, we'll add the rest of the stuff on there. We can also look at it in this plane. And what plane is this? Transverse plane, okay? Now, you have the labels already, but what do you think this is? What's the question mark? It's a spinal cord, good. So one is sternum, bony landmark, so I'm looking at a CT, right? Can identify breast tissue? It's not always possible to identify this on a CT scan. It's there, so I labeled it. Pectoral muscles, and we can go on and so forth as we go through. So if you have any questions, please come and ask me. Otherwise, I'll see you guys in the lab.